0: It is great to be here. You guys get used to my accent. Sorry about that. It's Philadelphia by way of... Actually, it's Atlanta, Georgia by way of Philadelphia. If I'm bringing a greeting from Philadelphia, this is what you do. Yo, how you doing? And then you say, yo, how you doing? That's how we do it. So, Let's practice one time. Yo, how you doing? Yo! That's right. You got it. You got it. Just get off the airplane and start saying that, and they'll take you anywhere you want to go. Um, Open up your Bibles. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 116. Um, It is a joy to be here. I've been talking a lot about the issue of mental disorders and a lot about the issue of uh, psychology and Christians and how we relate to it and how we understand it. Um, uh, this is not a. This is not something that's out there. This is something that we all know every day. I receive something in my in my news feed about something that's going on uh, in my culture, in your culture, uh, regarding what people are discovering about mental, mental illness and mental disorders. There's things coming out every day these days, coming out of the uh, the pandemic. The struggles people are having with adjustment, the struggles people are having with depression, anxiety, um, the effects of COVID on people, the effects on, on relationships, the, all the upheaval in our society. Um, you know, they're calling it the second pandemic, uh, which is a mental health pandemic. So I don't need to give you facts and figures, but I'm not that concerned tonight about what's happening out there. What I care about is what's happening right here. Because I know in this room, there are people who know somebody, probably all of you know somebody who has been diagnosed with some kind of mental disorder. Or perhaps somebody that you're concerned that maybe they should be seeing somebody about something that's going on in their lives. Perhaps even you're here, and you have been diagnosed with something, or you wonder if you need more help than you're getting. That's really all I care about tonight. I want to serve you. I want to serve you as a congregation. I want to serve you as people. I want to serve you as families. Because walking through anything related to mental disorders is traumatic for everybody involved. And so so the most I want you to get from me is is a compassionate heart of Jesus for, for, for all manner of suffering. Particularly suffering in this area. What I hope you get today is a balanced perspective that acknowledges the, the various physiological and sociological aspects of, of mental disorders, but also what's going on in the soul and how God interacts with us in those things. So that's my hope. And we're going to start in Psalm 116. And I'll let you know what I'm doing. Um, I'm going to unpack this psalm a bit. And talk you through it a little bit, because I think it's a wonderful song that can help us consider how the Bible describes suffering that can feel like mental illness. Um, and then we're going to actually pause, and I'm going to do something of a, of, a, of a lecture. I hope it doesn't come across that way, but I hope it's informative. But just to, I, a lot of people have never thought about this, I've never been exposed to the world of mental health and mental disorders they don't know how to relate to it. Maybe it's fearful. Uh, maybe you're suspicious of it. The whole point of this lecture is simply to break it down a little bit, to make it digestible. We don't do well if we just live in fear of things we don't understand. So my goal is just to help you understand better, help to demythologize something, help to demysticize something, to help you, something, help you see something that is very common in our worlds, and, and we want to know how to relate to it. We want to know how to relate to it if we possibly need it. We want to know how to relate to if other people we love care, are, are dealing with it and how to care for them. So that's the goal. Then we'll pick the psalm back up and we'll talk about some hope that comes from God's word for those who are struggling in this area. So this is Psalm 116, beginning in verse 1, God's word. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me therefore I will call on him as long as I live the snares of death encompassed me the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me I suffered distress and anguish then I called on the name of the Lord O Lord I pray deliver my soul Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord In the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm. All mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord. For all his benefits to me. I will lift up the cup of salvation. And call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. In the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O oh Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer you the, thank, the, the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord... In your midst, O oh, Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Lord, bless our consideration of your word tonight as we seek to hear from you. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Psalm 116 speaks. ...of deep anguish. But this is a particular kind of anguish... ...a kind of anguish that isn't spoken of that often in the Psalms. We don't know what suffering in particular the psalmist is experiencing... ...but we can determine from the text what it isn't. One prevalent kind of anguish in the Psalms... ...is the anguish of guilt before a holy God... ...where the psalmist confesses his sin, laments his failure cries out for forgiveness, we think of Psalm 51 in this category. The suffering in this psalm isn't the anguish of sin against God. There's no confession. There's no lament. There's no repentance. Another common form of suffering in the psalms is the suffering of injustice and oppression from enemies. In those psalms, the writer describes in detail the trials he's in. And the injustice he's enduring, the cry in those Psalms is for vindication. Lord, vindicate your name upon my adversaries. Lord, make things right. Psalm 116 isn't an anguish of oppression from enemies, there is no cry for vindication. What we do know is the anguish of in Psalm 116 is intensely personal. It's deep, personal pain. How deep? As deep as death. Three times the psalmist describes his experience in terms of death. You can see there in, Psalm, in verse 3, he says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. In verse 8, you see he says... For you have delivered my soul from death. In verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It would be tempting to say that the psalmist is talking about a near-death experience or that he is facing something that is bringing on imminent death. But there are clues in this psalm that let us know that maybe there's something else going on. The death, as referenced in this psalm, is most likely a metaphor for deep and seemingly endless and pointless suffering it is a profound inward pain of body and soul a prolonged experience of distress and anguish or in verse 3 or is translated sorrow a life of tears and stumbling verse 8 cut off from the benefits of human relationship verse 11 it's a life in internal, external, and relational despair. It's a life seemingly outside the shalom of God. Notice also the prominence in soul suffering in verses 4 through 8 in particular. In verse 4, he cries out for deliverance of his soul in bondage. In verse 6, the psalmist confesses that he's simple, biblically speaking, that means he doesn't even understand the danger he's in. He can't comprehend where he's at. Also in verse 6, the psalmist laments that his soul has been brought low. An older commentator describes this as being spent, utterly wasted, clean gone, no ability to help himself. No means of help. And no hope of help from others. In verse 7, he confesses that he can find no rest. In verse 8, his soul is fainting near to death. Sorrow overwhelms him and he is stumbling toward utter ruin and despair. We don't have a diagnosis of the psalmist affliction. In fact, it's very dangerous To take modern terms and categories and place them back on ancient literature of any kind. But it's clear this is a tortured soul. We don't know what caused it. We don't know how long he's been afflicted by it. We we do know that it covers him like the pall of death. We do know his soul is in bondage. We do know that he lives with a sense of profound alienation and despair because of it. Can we say this is a battle with mental illness as we understand it in a postmodern age? No, we can't do that. But we can say within this psalm there is space for the suffering of mental illness as we understand it. If you are suffering, this psalm invites you in to make it your own. Within this psalm, there is also profound hope for deliverance. Verse 4, salvation, verse 6, and freedom, verse 16. Within Psalm 116, there is a true rest for the tortured soul. Before we explore that space of rest, we need to understand what we're talking about. And that's where we're going to drop into a sort of a mini lecture on mental illness. So again, I'm going to be following an outline very carefully here because I. And this is a topic that I want to make sure I'm, there's clarity and precision on, um, and so you'll, it'll sound more like that. So, the topic is extremely complicated and confusing, and emotionally and culturally charged in the church and outside the church. Before I get into it, I want to take a moment and I want to honor a group of people who may be represented in this room. And that is people who work in the mental health field. You may be one of those people. You may know somebody or have a a friend or have a, a family member who works in the mental health field. It is an extraordinarily difficult place to work. It is highly pressurized and it is highly stressful and there's very little pay for most people in it. People in the mental health field go into it not to make money, but to help people. And a lot of times they get into it and they realize their ability to help people is very limited because of the structures they're in and because of the the responsibility, other responsibilities. They They frankly have too much on their plates. I've got a friend who runs a number of programs in and outside the city of Philadelphia for a large mental health agency and he just says, we're you know they're just now what they're doing right now is they're they're they have a contract with the city of Philadelphia to put mental health workers in flat jackets into police cars so that when they go in to a place where there could be a situation where there's a mental health issue rather than interrupting in violence they can go in and be part of the the rescue this is frontline work folks this is this is highly uh It's difficult work. And so if you're here and you work in the mental health field, I just want to thank you. Um, I want to thank you for taking that, for doing that. You're a means of common grace in a world sick with sin. And most people don't see what you're doing, but God sees. So thank you. Another book, if you want to read a book on this, particularly what we're talking about, which is in in the area of diagnosis and those kind of things, there's a book by uh, a man named uh, Dr. Mike Emlett. He's a physician, um, and it's called uh, Descriptions and Prescriptions, and you can get it on Amazon or whatever. It's not a long book. It's not a detailed, hard book, but it can help you understand what's going on in the realm of how, how mental health descriptions come to be and how medications function and work can be very helpful. So let me start with Terms. I've been using the term mental illness mostly because that's the common language to most people. But this is not actually a scientifically defined concept. The experience we call mental illness is also described as mental or emotional disorder, psychological or psychiatric disorder, personality disorder, or mental or psychological disease, and other terms as well. These are descriptive terms uh, that are used. According to the Australian government... A definition, a mental illness is a health problem that affects people's thoughts, mood, behavior, or the way they perceive the world around them. A mental illness causes stress and may, be effect, may affect the person's ability to function at work, in relationships, or in everyday tasks. We're going to unpack this a little bit. I just want to give it to you. they go on to say one in every five Australians, about four million people suffers from a mental illness in a given year. And almost half the population has suffered from a mental disorder at some time in their life. And the current statistics are showing, at least coming out of the pandemic, that that's increased significantly. Um, The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare says mental illnesses are disturbances of mood or thought that can affect behavior and distress the person or those around them. So that person has trouble functioning normally. This is somewhat similar to uh, the definition of the American Psychiatric Association. They say mental illness refers collectively to all diagnosable mental disorders, health conditions involving significant changes in thinking, emotion, or behavior, distress, and or problems functioning in social work or family activities. So, observations, you're picking up some similar themes in these definitions. Note that mental illness is not a have or have not condition. It is not COVID. It is a comparative condition. Mental illness is experienced in changes in a typical state of mental, emotional, cognitive, or relational function relative to that person's experience. Though it isn't technically diagnosed this way, it's often understood as a continuum. How much someone deviates from what would be considered typical, either in their life or in their their social circumstances, indicates whether or not they are experiencing a mental illness. So, So, for example, someone who is in a college environment Uh, is being treated a certain way based on the idea that they're in a college environment. The risk of a college environment, the social structures of a college environment, is someone coping in that environment. That's different than someone on a regular job. It's different than someone who has no job. So there is this sense that diagnosis happens with a person embedded in a social circumstance. Note also that mental illness is a health condition that expresses itself in thinking, emotion, or behavior. These definitions stop short, for the most part, of using the word disease. Now, there's significant debate in the medical community on this for a number of reasons we won't go into. But one of the main contentions in the hard medicine world is that the diagnosis of mental illness is not done through physiological or biological or genetic testing as other conditions are, but through an assessment of a person's reported or observable behavior and mental state. That's how diagnosis is done. We'll talk about this a little bit more below. It doesn't mean that there are not physiological factors in play. The fact that you, don't, you can't find a a causality does not mean there's a lack of physiology at work. It just means you can't test for particular uh, uh, mental disorders through any kind of biological function. At least now. that could happen in the future. There's work in brain scans. One of the difficulties, in because you're dealing, we're going to talk about this more, but in, it, with the brain, is that the brain is malleable. And so the brain can... Cause us, I'm using the word "cause" to indicate it can activate us in a certain direction of thinking or feeling or or, or, or volition, but it is also affected by our circumstances. And one of the great dilemmas is to in in a particular's life, person's life, what is what is what is happening has been affected from the outside, and what's happening that has been driven by the brain. That's that's an open question for people. The issue of trauma is one of those issues. Someone responding, the brain is reacting, but it's reacting because something else has happened and it's now been trained to react a certain way. So we have to think of the brain that way. Um, Ultimately, it might be more helpful and clear to talk about mental or emotional disorders than mental illness. Both are acceptable, but disorder is the language used by most professionals, and is probably better describing what's going on. There is some sense of order in a person's life, and it is now disordered in a way that isn't controlled by the person's volition. And so so they live a disordered life to some degree. A huge question is this. Why does it seem that so many people now struggle with mental disorders? Why does this seem this is a big issue, 20 years ago, 15 years? What is it? Well, I think there's three reasons I would point out. One is that there is clearly better awareness, more information and data, better diagnosis, more attention to prevention and treatment. This progress has led to a more humane understanding of mental illness and disorders. The stigma associated with mental illness, while it's still there, is giving way to more social acceptance. People are learning to live with and talk about something that was considered taboo too long ago. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing when someone comes into your church and they can talk about their diagnosed condition and not feel shame over it. That's a good thing. That's, my, that's part of my life. Why? Why... Why should I have to, to separate that from my experience of fellowship? On the downside, however, studies are now showing increasingly that our society, as it moves away from a values-based orientation on things like character and community and faith and other values that are community-oriented, there are mental and emotional and social costs to that. We're embracing a toxic combination of ...of needs for ill-defined happiness, I must be happy, is a high value in our our Western cultures. Probably the preeminent value. If there's one that's competing, it's I must have a high degree of success in life. In whatever I define success, I can only be successful. Failure is not an option. And so on the one hand, you have this need for, for unending happiness... And the need for no ceiling on my success. And that is not compatible life. But we're told we must have both. We're also told by our culture that pain and sadness are to be avoided. That aging can be denied. That possessions and prestige give us value. And that personal rights are more important than community well-being. Now, you mix all that together. It's a pretty toxic soup. And generation after generation is more and more feeding on that soup. And you would expect disorders to flow out of that because that's a a way of life that is impossible to accomplish. It is a recipe for massive personal failure. And we see that. No wonder then that the greatest spike in mental health disorders these days in the areas like depression and anxiety and stress-related disorders. But if we want to know the hard, unvarnished truth, the reason so many people struggle with, struggle with mental disorders is this. We have disorders because we human beings are fundamentally disordered. That's how the Bible describes it. We are all disordered. We are created to love and glorify God to find our meaning and joy in Him. Sin is the denial of that fundamental reality in the vain search for self-worship and for self-glory. If you want to know the fountain of mental illness, don't read Freud. Read Romans chapters 1 to 3. There you will find all you need to know about the basic human condition that produces mental disorders. The ugly truth is this. To the extent that we seek to live life apart from God, we are not sane. No matter how well adjusted we may be in this life. The fundamental insanity of the human condition is the rejection of the God from whom all life has meaning. The fact that science can identify genetic propensities toward mental illness and observe it in brain scans does not challenge the truth of Scripture. It confirms the pervasiveness of sin at the deepest core of who we are. The psychologies have been created in a humanistic framework without concept of eternal reality. They are making sense Of this life. As as if there is no life to come. They're making sense of this life. As there is no God. With whom we have to deal. They're making sense of this life. As if we can save ourselves. And if we follow that path. We will be disordered people. Even if our coping mechanisms. Give us all this life. That we want we know it will all burn up in the end. And that seems futile. And that seems disordered. And that seems like a recipe for a wasted life. So that is the fundamental reason. Now, I want to get specific here and talk about some things that you'll experience if you're dealing with life in the mental health world. So we're going to talk a little bit about a psychiatric diagnosis. And folks... This is not my profession. I've been, I have been—I got a master's in, in counseling, but I'm not a psychologist. Um, I am, I'm not living in the mental health world. I'm, I'm helping people who are in the mental health world. I'm studying the mental health world. So please don't hear me talking like an expert. I'm trying to break some things down just to help you process if these are mysterious things. So what's happening in a, di- in a psychiatric diagnosis? When someone receives a legitimate psychiatric diagnosis... It means that a person who is professionally qualified to do mental health diagnosis has observed that person's behavior or descriptions of behavior in something of a clinical setting. If I'm sitting watching your kid at a picnic run amok and I'm a psychiatrist, I can't diagnose that. I need data. I need data in a in a controlled environment so I can strip out the other factors that may be in play. These observations are assessed based on the predetermined criteria of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, the DSM-5 right now, which is the foundational tool for mental health diagnosis. It was created in the United States, but it's used as a primary diagnostic tool in Australia as well. Um, if the evaluator believes the person fits a su- su- sufficient number of the symptoms for a particular DSM disorder category to warrant a diagnosis, then that diagnosis is formally given. So basically what someone who is trained to do this will do is interact with someone and observe behavior. Notice, you can't go into a, uh, to a psychologist and say, my husband's crazy. And have them slap a diagnosis on them. They need to talk to the husband. They need to find out what you think crazy means. Um, they may look at you and say, well, I think we know where the real problem is. <laughs> um, but, so there, there, it is a professionalized, highly developed skill. If it's done right. Um, the DSM, now here, is a diagnosis. It's not an identity. It is incorrect to say you are a bipolar person. It is correct to say you struggle with bipolar disorder. A diagnosis is never a definition of personhood. It is a description of disordered life in a person. A DSM diagnosis is not a life sentence. It's not because you are depressed, you will always be depressed. It is a moment in time assessment of a person in their situation for the purpose of treatment. And it's not an explanation. A DSM diagnosis does not tell you why. It will tell you what, at least in the categories that it provides, but it will never tell you why. The DSM-5 itself says this. A diagnosis does not carry any necessary implications regarding the causes of the individual's mental mental disorder or the individual's degree of control over behaviors that may be associated with that disorder. What they're saying is that that we can't predict what a person will do because they have this and we can't can't make a statement that because a person did this it was because of the disorder. Their behavior is not part... If they make decisions, it may or may not be relevant to the disorder. That protects them in in criminal situations where people act out criminally and want to blame it on a disorder. Well, no, we're not saying anything about what they're capable of doing. We're just saying, this is what we've seen and what we're evaluating. Now, the DSM is not without problems, but the benefit of it, and I want to emphasize the benefits of the DSM, even though I think we have to be aware that it is not a perfect tool The DSM is not without its problems, but the benefit is that it standardizes descriptions of mental health problems so they can be studied and treated with some level of consistency. Apart from that, every practitioner will develop their own criteria and and diagnose according to their own way they view things. It's a good thing in our culture to have some sort of a standard by which people are diagnosed. The DSM can be a helpful doorway into targeted treatment and support that's available in the mental health community. Uh, we, we were talking earlier uh, in, in, um, in in Australia. If you get a diagnosis, that entitles you to six government paid at least six government paid sessions of counseling. It 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 triggers a system in place. We, there's something that happens in the states like this, but it involves insurance companies, so it's far less. Far more complicated. Um, But, it and it helps to find what kind of treatment, where you might go. What do you actually need because of that? Um, It can be a way to objectify a problem so we can begin to look beyond it to what it means to grow and change. When someone is dealing with the, the experience of depression, for example, or let's say anxiety. Someone's dealing with anxieties to be able to say, okay, we have a diagnosed anxiety disorder That's great that we know that. Now let's talk about your life. Otherwise, anxiety is all I have in my life. And so a diagnosis can define where problems are and therefore where problems aren't. Um, It allows us to identify and work with risk factors that are known to be associated with the diagnosed condition. Certain risk factors, things like suicidal tendencies... um, Things like delusional tendencies can be watched out for, can be helped. If we don't have a diagnosis, then we're, we're, we may miss those key, crucial signals that something's unwinding. Let's give you an example. In bipolar, if someone is about to go into a manic state, one of the things you'll note is they stop sleeping well and maybe stop sleeping altogether. If, so if you're going to help somebody, if you know that they, they have a tendency toward, toward manic episodes, you track their sleep. Which means that you might need to help regulate their lifestyle because lifestyle disruptions may be sleep disruptions. And so you can start to manage somebody based on what you know tends to happen with some, with some disorders. That's all good stuff, folks. That's all good. That's helpful. And it can give us ways to extend mercy and compassion. When someone says they've been diagnosed, Ed Welch, he's a friend of mine and he's a neurobiologist and a counselor, when, when someone comes to him and says, this is what I've been diagnosed with, he just starts with, well, how can we pray? How can we pray? This isn't outside of God. God isn't saying, oh, my goodness, you've been diagnosed with a disorder. We have to get that fixed. Before Can you get that fixed, and then I'll come back and get involved in the process? No, God is at work. This is not outside the orientation of God. Now, in Australia, and this is, I'm, I'm learning this this week, general practitioners receive training to diagnose and prescribe Uh, treatment for basic mental disorders. A GP can diagnose something like depression or anxiety disorder and prescribe treatment in the form of medication or therapy. And then you get the six sessions. The reason that's that's helpful in your culture is that means what they're emphasizing is we want to make sure nobody, nobody falls outside the treatment option. And the easiest person for you... If I had to get you to a psychologist which in, in, in Australia is someone who can have a master's degree and training in the disciplines in the, in, the, in the United States. Only PhDs are called psychologists. So um, so it's a difference in nomenclature. But, uh, but if I had to wait and sign up these days when everybody is doing Zoom appointments and I had to wait six weeks and six months for an appointment when I've got a situation that's deteriorating, that's not good. But if I can go to my general practitioner, and I can talk with him or her and uh, and, can get a, and, and can get a diagnosis, then I can, I can get that and then that then makes me eligible to go right into counseling. That's a great system. That's a plus. That's a win. Not without problems. Every system has problems. But that's a win in my book. Um, now, the biggest weakness within the DSM is the same fundamental flaw in the discipline of psychology in general. It cannot account for what Henry Scougal called the life of God in the soul of man. Insights on human behavior from psychology have value, but the Bible presents a cosmic view of all things in which all the collective wisdom of psychology is evaluated as either truth or error according to God's truth, ...and treated accordingly. A sound understanding of psychology, therefore... ...and therefore psychological disorders... ...cannot be obtained by ignoring or rejecting... ...what the Bible says about who we are as people... ...made in the image of God. The biblical understanding of personhood... Takes into account the body and the soul, the physical and the spiritual, the temporal and the eternal. If we're going to understand true personhood, we must all have that. We must know that there is a body and a soul. We must know there is a a physical and the spiritual. We must know that there's there's a temporal and the eternal. Ed Welch says this. We are created, I don't, you have this, okay, good there. We are created of physical and spiritual substance. Scripture speaks of the soul or heart as guiding us by way of its affections and allegiances. Its activity is identified as obedience or disobedience, godly or ungodly. The body is the material equipment for living in the material world. It is never defined as right or wrong, but as strong or weak. Mental illnesses, in other words, can be broken down into more elemental categories. They sit at the intersection of the human heart and an erratic brain. The basic rule from this ontological duality is that the body can make life very complicated, but it can neither make us sin or, in most cases, keep us from following Jesus. We have to keep in mind there is a brain-body component and there is a heart-soul component, if we're going to understand ourselves and others. A little bit on, on, on psychiatric medication. Leads us to consider psychiatric medication the overwhelmingly preferred option for treating mental disorders in the United States and probably here as well. Medication must, can be very helpful, but it, we must be very wise in its use. Mike Emlett says, the realm of psychiatry is trying to determine pathology. In the most complicated area of the human body. Some thoughts on medication. These are just reflections. Maybe I'll help you. Psychoactive medications are powerful. And must be used carefully. My concern about them. Is misuse. Not use. Misuse in the form Of poor diagnosis. And therefore the wrong medication. Being prescribed. Misuse in. uh, In stacking those medications. On top of other medications. For other conditions. Or even on top of other. uh, Psychoactive medications. Without active management. Of the medications that are involved. Can be very dangerous. And self medication. Which can look like. I take my meds. Like I take a Tylenol I feel it bad I take it I feel better I stop don't ever do that a lot of psychiatric medications you have to wean up to and you have to wean down on you can't you can't start and stop you can't treat it like a like a feel good pill and the 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 you have to be very aware of the of the secondary effects the side effects and know how they function. Um, I'll give you an example of, of the way this can play out. I had a really good friend of mine. Uh, he was an artist. And um, he he, uh, he just had a long-term experience uh, taking uh, medication for depression. But he was finding increasingly. And medications often have to be changed because we adapt to some and some don't work as well. And new ones come out and everything. So medication isn't a static thing either. But what was happening with him was he felt like, I can't create. I'm losing who I am. And so I sat down with him and his wife, who was also a friend of mine, and we were just talking about it. And he was saying, I feel like in taking medication, I don't know who I am. And his wife said, the problem is, if you're not taking medication, me and the kids don't know who you are. And so that's an indication of the power of medication. It has personality-shaping reality to it. And so we need to take it very carefully if we're taking it. The second thing is responsible doctors who, who, who prescribe should, and I think typically will, tie the use of a psychiatric drug to counseling and other lifestyle changes along with some sort of an active management of the drug. They'll also be very careful with these things. So in other words, if you're taking medication from some, somebody giving you medication and they're not actively managing, you're not getting good care. And you are a consumer of mental health services. And you are a consumer of, of physical health ser- services. And you better act like a wise consumer. Because the field doesn't always deliver as it's promised. Like every other field. Our government doesn't always deliver as it's promised. We need to be aware consumers. The legal profession doesn't always deal as it's promised. It's complicated. It's hard to understand. There are good practitioners and there are not so good practitioners. If you live in this area, you might have high quality care. If you move to this area, your care might not be so good. All those things are factors in how you understand medication. Act responsibly. If you're presently on medication... This doesn't mean it should, you should abandon. It means you should respect its power and its limits. You should use it rightly. And you should never f- put your hope in it to fix everything wrong about you. Anybody who responsibly uh, prescribes will never say this will fix your problem. Because that time they don't really know how it works. They just know it does this and seems to have effect on that. At the vi- at the very best, psychiatric medication can help regulate your emotional and mental state to the point where you can manage your life. The way I would describe it is if, you, if your mental disorder causes you to fluctuate, whatever it is, fluctuate like this in a way that you can't, it's, it's creating disorder um, in your life, and you can't get order in your life, whether it's internally, uh, uh, rationally, emotionally. Or, uh, or any other way, a, a medication can begin to take those extremes and press them down, sometimes at the expense of what you love about this, but get you down here so that you can begin to address the underlying issues of lifestyle and health that need to be dealt with in a disorder. That's what, how they best function. What they can't do is make you happier than you're supposed to be. They can't improve an ordinary life. Brad Hambrick, he's a psychologist, he says this. Medication will never make us healthier than our current choices allow. Our lifestyle is the ceiling for our mental health. We will never be sustainably happier than our beliefs and choices allow. Medication can correct some biological causes and diminish the impact of environmental causes to our struggles. Medication cannot raise our mental health potential above what our lifestyle allows. A key indicator of whether we are using psychotropic medication wisely is whether, A, we are using the medication as a tool to assist us in making needed lifestyle and relational changes... Or B, using medication as an alternative to having to make those changes. Option A is wise. Option B results in either over-medication or feeling like the medication didn't work as we continually try to compensate medically for our volitional neglect of our mental health. Hugely common. Massively common on college campuses. I have, I have taken an extra five credits this semester. I've got to get a, a, a 3.8 GPA. I've got to be able to get into this. I'm going to do this. What am I going to do? I'm going to get Adderall. I'm going to get somebody to, to, uh, to, to uh, diagnose me with ADHD and I'm going to get Adderall. Not because I have ADHD, but because I need to be able to stay awake and I need to be fully charged all the time. And so what do I do? I take Adderall. What does that do? It spikes me up. What do I need, I need marijuana or I need alcohol to suppress me. And so I go from 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 psyched out here to depressed here. Everything starts to unwind and unravel and then I think I have a mental health disorder that came from the outside. No, it came from my choices in life that delivered me there. And my environment, which demanded me to make those choices. Now, that's not everybody. I'm not saying that we get there through volitional choices. But we live always interacting with our world. We're never passive. And so we have to recognize how we want to not let medication keep us from doing what we need to do to live wise, sober lives. So a few thoughts on counseling, and then we'll start turn the corner. Um, this is way out of left field. Uh. I haven't been to a single counselor in Australia over the last week. So I'm just conjecturing here. But I'm doing it based on my interactions with counselors I know. Some Christian, some non-Christian in America. And here's what they generally tend to tell me. Counseling tends to go best. If you're going to counseling or going to go to counseling or considering counseling, let me tell you how to maximize the experience. It's going to tend to go best, number one, Keep your appointment. Don't schedule an appointment and then blow it off. That's not going to tell the counselor that you're really serious about what you're wanting to work on something. Number two, be honest. Go in and plan to be honest. Now, counselors, uh, psychologists, they're dealing in trust. They're recognizing you're not going to come in and trust them. They're not expecting you to. But go in planning on being honest. I'm going to tell you what my life is like. I'm going to answer your questions honestly. If you don't do that, you're going to have more and more sessions with less and less benefit. Um, Counseling tends to go best if you're interested in change, not just understanding. So, if I just go in because I think I just want to figure myself out. And I love a counselor who's, un, who's educated in these things. And they can help tell me more about myself. And I just love the idea of self-analysis. And you're a great coach for self-analysis. Eventually a good counselor is going to go, I think we're kind of coming to the end of our helpfulness. Because if you're not wanting to change in something, I'm not sure why I'm here. I'm not here to give you endless cycles of self-analysis they want to help you change if you're uh it tends to go best if you engage in relational dialogue not personal monologue if you go into counseling thinking i just need somebody to let it all out and you spend 55 minutes of an hour letting it all out and then you do that every time you're you're not really paying for counseling you're paying for a a friend you're paying for a listener And counselors don't want to, they're willing to let you talk, but if that's all you're going to do, at some point they feel guilty about charging you. Unless the government's paying for it, and they may go forever that way. (laughs) It's not the way the system's designed. The system's designed for you to get help. Um, It'll tend to go well if you give meaningful attention to homework or assignments as given. Sometimes counselors will give homework assignments. Those are not meant to radically... You know, they're meant to, to bridge between sessions until they become the way you live life. I think the way homework tends to happen is session, they know sessions are very important early on. But by giving homework, eventually you're going to start doing the work and you won't need them as much. Do the work. Uh, if you're willing to work with the counselor to establish goals that will allow the process to move toward a conclusion. So at some point in at time, you'd like to say, so how can we get out of this? Where is our landing spot? Where are we headed? That's a very helpful thing if you help the counselor with that kind of a goal. Um, And also, if you have other means of growth and change beyond counseling. Counselors love to know you have a helpful community. That you have a place where you can do more than just live. You can actually contribute. Counselors love the church even if they've never been to the church. But the church is a ready-made place for counselees to act out what they want them to do. So counseling is not opposed to the church. Counselors, if if you're involved in the church, even if they have no idea what a church is, and I can say this about a mosque or a synagogue or whatever, they love the idea of a community that you're involved in, that you're participating in, that you're supported in, and that you're contributing to. That moves toward mental health. They love that. They don't want to be your pastor ...and your congregation. They want you to have that... ...and then then be part of the help. One of the things we talked about on Saturday... ...was... ...unless you use depression as an example... ...a common way people describe depression... ...is as a... ...as walls that close in on them. It's almost like you're sitting in the middle of a room... ...and walls are closed. Let me start with this way. When I... I mean, I'll draw this illustration... When I was in high college, uh, my friends and I used to rent a beach house during spring break in, down in uh, South Carolina. And if you went to one of those old bungalows back then and, you, and it had been closed all, all year, if you're the first one in there, when you opened up the door, it was not a pleasant smell. It smelled fishy, it smelled stale, the air was bad. If you're smart, you open the door and try to get some air into that room. But you recognize one door open is not going to get much air in, so you go to the back and you open up a window and you try to get some airflow through the house. Right? Have you ever done this? Um, and then you recognize, go you know, the more air, the better things are. So you go through and you open up all kinds of doors and windows so that you can uh, that you can you can get fresh air in. Um, what? What happens with us is our lives, if we start closing ourselves off, become like that beach house. Whatever's in there just gets stale. Whatever's in there just starts fettered. Whatever in there starts to just, it it starts to go bad. And that's why depression is particularly difficult because the very thing someone is doing is, is exacerbating the problem. By withdrawing into themselves, by erecting these walls... We're actually creating a worse problem. That's many um, mental health conditions fit that paradigm. So what do we do? We, if we're wise, we want to open up a, window, a door. So if someone is struggling with depression, maybe counseling is that door that opens up. That's great. But if it's just one door, it's not going to do that much. So maybe I need another window. So we go and we open up another window. And that window may be read your Bible. And then you open another window. And that may be attend church. Open up another window. Perhaps medication. Open up another window. Maybe get involved in serving other people. Open up another window. Look at your diet. Look at exercise. Window, 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 window. A healthy life. Is one that looks more like a gazebo than like a house. More windows than walls. That's how we, get, that's how we sustain mental health. It's how we sustain spiritual health. It's what God calls us to live. We're meant to be people open to the work of God because what can happen is you can be, you can go to that counselor and be talking to them and let's say, you know, or you, you know, a pastor can be a window. And frankly, that's all we are. We are just windows. Um, we are just away. But if you're going to the counselor, sometimes I'll, I'll work with the counselor, and I'll say, "You tell me what you're working on," and I'll be as I interact with them, we'll be feeding that and we'll help each other. We'll create some flow in this. Or someone is at a counselor, and and they and the counselor offers them a verse, and next thing you know, it's it's a verse read on at, at church, and they realize, "Wow, God must be here." You see, God is at work. People who start with mental illness, they either over. They overvalue how they perceive God at work or they don't perceive God at work at all. The reality is God is at work, but he's working to heal people. He's working to help people. He's working to help people identify what is my physiology and what is my heart. And so that's what we do. That's what we do. Um, We help people open up doors. If you're here and you feel like, okay, I finally came out to something. I opened up my door. Don't go home and close it. What's another window you can open up? What's another thing you can do? You'll start to find the Spirit of God starts to work in your heart in a way. And much healing comes. Because people don't, people don't recover from mental illness. Sometimes it just lifts. Sometimes they work their way out of it. They rarely just recover from it. They rarely, it just doesn't go away. But things happen and life changes. And next thing you know, what was debilitating is now manageable. What was, now, what was manageable is now a memory. And that can happen. So let's get back to this and we'll finish up in Psalm 116. If you struggle, three things. If you struggle with a mental disorder, number one, your struggle does not separate you from God. The writer of Psalm 116 is looking back over his suffering and God's deliverance, but he wants to. To let us know that even in the worst of times, he knew that God had not forsaken him. In verses 1 and 2, we read, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. Guessing, there is no, this is what God did. What the psalmist is amazed by is God heard and listened. God was there. God did not turn his back on him. God did not reject him. He hasn't seen all that God is going to do, but he he knows God is there. And in that, he rejoices. Mental illness will beg you to turn away from God into yourself. Your enemy the devil will mock your unbelief, your weakness of faith, and the very existence of God. The psalmist, though, he fought the fight. In verse 10, he said, I believed even when I spoke that I was, I'm greatly afflicted, I believed. I could say I am great, greatly be- afflicted with faith toward God. I describe my condition and then I describe my reality. Your condition is not your reality. Your condition is your condition. The psalmist, throughout this psalm, is able to separate out the condition of his struggle from his identity. And therefore, his identity before the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, who fought a lifelong battle with depression, learned over time how to see God in the darkness and how to see, seek God when he was overwhelmed. He wrote, I know perhaps as well as anyone what depression means and what it feels it is to feel myself sinking lower and lower. Yet at the worst, when I reach the lowest depths, I have an inward peace which no pain or depression can at the least disturbed. Trusting in Jesus Christ my Savior. There is still a blessed quietness. In the deep caverns of my soul. Though upon the surface. A rough tempest may be raging. And there may be a little apparent calm. Sometimes you have to be reminded that. There is a a, a There is a, there's a peace beneath the pain. A second observation, your struggle does not define you. Alyssa Rands is an advocate for those who suffer mental illness. She's also a long-time sufferer with bipolar disorder. She's a memoir, she's a writer of her, of her own struggle memoir, Letters from a Bipolar Mother. Now, I don't have any indication that she's a believer, but she's insightful. Um, and she writes about the loss of identity. And she says this, Bipolar robs you of that which is you. It can take you from the very core of your being and replace it with something that is completely opposite of who and what you truly are. Because my bipolar went untreated for so long, I spent many years looking in the mirror and seeing a person I did not recognize or understand. Not only did bipolar rob me of my sanity, it robbed me of my ability to see beyond the space It dictated me to look. I no longer could tell reality from fantasy. And I walked in a world no longer my own. In Psalm 116, God, through the psalmist, sets the record straight. You are not your struggle. You are not your diagnosis. You are not your shame and your regret. You are not your fears. You are not the stigma the world attaches to you. In verse 9, he says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This is the pivot verse of the psalm. The verses leading up to this testify to the rescuing care of God. The verses following it speak of of a life redeemed from the pit. The sense of verse 9 is that the psalmist has been lifted out of the pit of despair... And has been put on the path of life. What does it mean to walk before the Lord in the land of the living? This is a a beautiful picture of an ongoing steady progress. Out of the hole into the sun. Not without struggles. To borrow the words of Frederick Douglass. Without struggle there is no progress. But it is struggle in the land of the living. Not the pit. If you know Christ... However you're struggling, you're struggling in the land of the living because God has delivered you from the pit. The pit of judgment, the pit of God's wrath, you no longer have to fear. He has placed you in the land of the living. We call this in the New Testament discipleship. It's faithful following that rewrites horror stories into redemption stories over time. There's no easy fix for mental illness. No magic pill, no transcendent insight, no guaranteed program. There is the promise in the Bible that those who seek the Lord will find Him. Those who truly find Him will truly find joy in Him. And you have equal standing in the community of the disciples as well. That's what verses 9 is telling you. You will walk in the land of the living. Those who seem to to do really well, you have equal right to be there as they do. You don't have to earn a special right because you struggle with mental disorders. You have a right because God has given you the right to be there in the land of the living. So he says in verse 14 and repeats in verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. I will stand before God's people and say, I struggle with a mental disorder, but I am here worshiping God because I have a right to be here. That is remarkable. If you have somebody in your midst who stands in this room and praises God when they have trouble keeping coherent thoughts. That is glorious to God. And we need to be a congregation who welcomes people no matter where they're coming from. Who've been brought and put in the land of the living. They are our people. They are our family. We owe it to them to make it as easy as possible for them to come and pay their vows to the Lord. Finally, the ultimate remedy for your struggle is found in Jesus. A person who is experiencing something that has mental health implications is suffering, even if they don't see the experience of suffering. And that's a distinct feature of, of of some types of mental disorders, is that people who are suffering most acutely think they're doing great. They're often hurting themselves, wrecking their present, clouding their future, destroying relations, relationships. If they are restored, the guaranteed experience of anybody who's restored from a deep mental health struggle is going to be shame and regret. They're going to look back and they're going to see the damage that got caused. They're going to look back and see the wasted time. They're going to look back and see the money that got spent trying to help them. They're going to see people who, who got fed up and left. They're going to see the in their wake all that happened. If medical treatment is actually helpful, it's often helpful at the expense of considerable physical side effects, including changes of the parts of a personality that connect to life enjoyment. This in itself is discouraging, and it's so hard to find anyone who understands. The glorious truth for you is that the one person who's actually able to do something about it knows in the most profound way, What it means to have a tortured soul. Verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation. And call on the name. Of the Lord. We. Tend to. Interpret this verse. as I will bring my thanksgiving to God. Because he has saved me. That's actually not the picture in play here. This is a Hallel song. sung by people on pilgrimage to the Passover, Jesus sang this song. What this song is about is people coming with empty hands to the temple. Lord, fill my hands with salvation. The cup of salvation for us is an empty cup. God has to fill it. I will lift my hands with my empty cup and call on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. Lord, fill me. Lord, make your, your face shine upon me and give me peace. But Jesus, and we can make that claim and we can ask for that because there was another man who traveled that road. He went to submit his perfect soul, fully at peace with God and everything around him, to the outer torture of crucifixion and the inner torture of sin bearing. Jesus welcomed the snares of death. He welcomed the hellish pangs of Sheol, the distress and anguish driven to other lowliness, the grief and the shame. Jesus took it upon himself. He submitted to the treachery of liars and the betrayal of friends. He submitted to the cords of death, embraced the rejection of God in his moment of need so that he could deliver us from evil, so that he could give us freedom from bondage, so that he could fill the cup of salvation that we all, who are disordered, need. Just to close, John Newton, my spiritual hero, uh, wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. Slave, slave uh, trader, converted, became a minister. Uh, radical transformation. God visited him in his relationships with two experiences of profound mental disorder. One with his, his friend William Cooper. And William Cooper was a man who was a gifted poet, the greatest poet in England at the time, and who was a Christian, but who fell into a dark, deep depression. And, and, and Newton stayed with him and visited with him every single day for six years. Cooper never renounced never his faith, but decided he never wanted to get up out of his bed again. And he just laid there until he died. While his friend came to minister to his soul each time. John Newton also had a niece whose parents died suddenly. And he and Polly, his wife, took the niece in as, as their child uh, adopted the niece. She had some significant mental breakdown. He doesn't ever describe in detail what it is. That required her to be institutionalized. And it was not a state hospital. It was called Bethlehem uh, Hospital for the Insane. Short, Bedlam. Where we get the word Bedlam is where he she was. It's the only place they could take somebody. She was uncontrollable. He visited her year after year after year. Eventually, God intervened. God brought her through it. God brought her out. God healed her. God ended up putting her in a position. Where when he was living age. His wife had died. She was his caretaker. Through his death. And was a significant player. In gospel ministry in London. In that period of time. One. Ended tragically. Though not without salvation. The other. Ended. Wonderfully. Newton. Tarried with both. And this is what he has to say. I believe that there may be. A real exercise of faith. And growth in grace. When our sensible feelings. Are faint and low. A soul may be as be in as thriving a state when thirsting, seeking and mourning after the Lord, as when actually rejoicing in him, as much in earnest when fighting in the valley as when singing upon the mount. Nay, dark seasons afford the surest and strongest manifestations of the power of faith, to hold fast to the word of promise, to maintain maintain a hatred of sin. To go on steadfastly in the path of duty. In defiance. Both of the frowns and smiles of the world. When we have but little comfort. Is a more certain evidence of grace. Than a thousand things. Which we may do or forbear. When our spirits are warm and lively. I have seen many. Two in particular. Who have been upon the whole. But uneven walkers. Though at times they have seemed to enjoy or at least have talked of great comforts. I have seen others for the most part complain of much darkness and coldness. Who have been remarkably humble, tender and exemplary in their spirit and conduct. Surely were I to choose my lot I should be with the latter. We want because those people hold their hands up. And ask for the Lord of salvation. Lord I pray that you would just help us be. Not only people who understand and compassionate toward those who struggle. But if we have folks in our midst who perhaps have felt like they have been outside. Or, or left outside the land of the living, that they would be brought in and they would find a place here. And that, Lord, if we are evangelizing in our community, if we are reaching out, particularly in these days, we will encounter, if statistics hold, one in four people with a, with a mental illness. Let us not shrink back from that. Let us find a way to be part of your gracious hand in the salvation of disordered people. Because we know what it means to be disordered. In Jesus name. Amen.
1: amen. 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 I'll be over here. Is COVID safe? Yeah I think so. It's COVID safe? Okay.
0: Are you going to
2: bombard me like from both sides? (laughs) Hello. Well, I mean, it seems inappropriate to clap at such a beautiful moment, but I do really want us to thank Andy for that exemplary talk. It's really been a joy the past week to spend so much time with Andy um, because he, he really loves people so much. He loves the Lord, he loves the Word, he knows the Gospel, and he loves people. His heart breaks for people. You can see even as he speaks about the mental health professionals and, and you know, people struggling, uh, He, this is the real deal for him. Uh, and I thank you so much everyone for coming out, and I, I hope this blessed you. I hope this helped you to orient yourself in this world that God has put us in, this time and space and history that God has put us in. And I hope it's helped you to kind of know where to turn in the Bible, how to turn in the Bible, how to navigate parts of the mental health field. Um, It's certainly helped me. And I hope most of all it's helped your soul. You are not your struggle. Uh, There is hope and deliverance in Christ. You can pay your vows to the Lord and come to church and worship even with the most severe of disorders. And we want to spend a little bit of time the rest of this evening uh, having a chance to ask Andy some questions. I'm going to run the panel. I've got some questions that have been sent in. Uh, the first question is very... Can,
0: can I just uh, interrupt oh, yeah. one second? Oh, you but, can. You per, can do whatever Brandon, you want. Um, Here's an awkward question.
2: Uh,
1: oh, I'm loving this. That's right.
0: <laughs> Three people on that's the right. panel yeah, and that's you, that's right. you Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> no, my awkward question is this. I'm gonna be posting some things uh, on social media tomorrow, just about me being here, just how much fun it is and great. Yeah. But I'm here on ministry, and I would rather have some some pictures where I was actually doing ministry. Oh. So could you just take, Can a you few take some photos of me? Shots? Can you please? So that way, that way my picture with the snake will look yeah. better. Here's me at the reptile pub. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Here's me at the opera house. <laughs> <laughs> She's been serving Jesus all week. Here's me at the pub. <laughs>
2: We did have a good time at the Reptile Park yesterday. Yeah, that's right. That's and Andy right. has a great photo yeah. of him with a Burmese python around his neck. That's that was right, great. That's right. Yeah, uh, that's most, the probably the most significant question of this evening came from uh, someone, and they asked. And so we'll start with the big ones. Um, Where did you get your dope kicks from? That was, <laughs> so there's someone with some sneaker appreciation. Wow, that's
0: very encouraging. Um, that blows me away because I've gotten more encouragement about my about my kicks from my sneaks, from, uh, and I'm like, I, I just got them, I just, I liked them, but apparently, I mean, I think people stop me. One guy said, you know, all the great runners are using those right now. <laughs> and I just thought, but the problem is, they're about to go into, uh, into lawn mowing mode, uh, so you're seeing yeah. the last of them before yeah. they become lawn mowing shoes, yeah. so, yeah. I will sell them if you want, but...
2: Right, uh, perhaps Dave and yourself, Andy, can speak to this I, I think that probably There's two ends of the spectrum We can fall on in this room I feel like I'm neglecting this half of the room Hey, this half, love you guys um, Oh,
1: he's getting a different angle Here Hang we on, go Just look prayerful Guys, just look prayerful yeah. Guys, this panel is over
2: We are just taking photos now <laughs> <laughs> I just do this Just pray Take a photo of that, that's good <laughs> Okay, I I think one end of the spectrum plays down this realm of like, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't have these struggles. I know Jesus. I have the Holy Spirit. And so there's this sense of shame, this sense of hopelessness. Like, I, I shouldn't need to see a mental health professional. I should just need a pastor. I should just need to read my Bible more, believe more. The other end is like, I've got mental health problems. What the heck does the church have to do with that? You know, I don't, I've never seen my pastor when I broke my arm. <laughs> you know, I never seen a pastor when I, I had, you know, COVID um, to, to treat me with my disease or whatever. Uh, and so there's those two ends of the spectrum. And how would you speak into th- that kind of realm? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> what, do you want a song or something that kicks it off? Or... <laughs> I, I think it's just important that we recognize that as Christians, we're still broken people. And so we get sick, we do get broken legs, we get broken bodies, we get broken minds. And so there are times when, without doubt, we need help from people. And that's not a failure of faith, that's just a reality of living in a broken down house and being broken down people. So I think on the one side of the coin, for an individual that's like, hey, we should never feel that way, that's like saying to somebody you should never break your leg. It's like, it may happen to you, and we want to be there for you. The other side of the coin where somebody's like, hey, I don't want to share it with anybody else, is actually in some ways the same answer. We get broke, but we need to understand the Bible doesn't speak about Jesus and me. It speaks about Jesus and we. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be doing life in community because sometimes, in my experience pastorally, Sometimes somebody isn't even quite recognize that they're broke. They know something's wrong but they don't realize how bad they're getting. You need other people around you to often help you yeah. and walk with you and to open those windows, open those doors yeah. um, and to assist you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's why I, I the, the idea of the room and the doors and windows to me is, Such a good picture. is is a helpful picture for me because it makes it keeps me out of that dichotomy, it's either this or this. Yeah. You know, I'm interacting with someone. Have you considered maybe talking to a doctor? Have you considered, yeah. you know, you don't have to. Uh, you know, it's only a window. You don't necessarily have to open it now. It's not the window. Uh, just the same as you're talking to somebody. Have you thought about talking to your pastor? It's not go talk to your pastor because he's he's like the whole whole house. No, he's just a window. Yep. You know, we're all just windows and doors. Your brother, your sister. Let's pray. That's a window. That's the way I think I would, I would like to view it, and as a, as a as a culture, there are inappropriate doors to open, like go start drinking is an inappropriate door.
2: <laughs> Not a good window.
0: Not a good window or door. That's a cellar. That takes <laughs> you down. Um, so we know what we're talking about. Oh, you know what you need to do? Watch more streaming television. That's what you need to do. No, we know that. We know that. We're, we're believers. But we know that we can talk to one another and say, you know what, I really feel like I just feel stuck. I feel like just things aren't good. Well, let's talk about what you've the doors and windows you have open. Well, I hadn't been to small group recently. Well, you know what? Try you know, go to small group, see what God does. You know? And I'm saying that's the answer. You don't want to put it, the small group under pressure that they have to be deliver. Um, but maybe it's... Bring your
1: A-game that yeah, night. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's
0: right. And all these people have to act a certain way. And if they don't, I'm out of here. Yeah, that's right. So that's right. it's just, let's normalize the fact that God has created us to have many accesses and windows of grace into our lives. And it behooves us to access them as we can. Yeah,
2: And I think what can help us is what what you said, Andy, about... All that's true and and good and perhaps beautiful that's in the mental health world, the way we find that out is by evaluating it through scripture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the way to kind of test the waters as to whether or not you're receiving good mental health counseling or or, um, you're in that is not by uh, the sniff test or even by pragmatic fruit, but by testing it according to the word of God. uh, And that can help us in that realm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go with a bit of a harder question. What about people who are living with lifelong mental disorders, for example, bipolar, schizophrenia? How can we encourage and look after those people? Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think, I think recognizing that uh, it is a, it is a, it's, it's, it's a personal trial. An enduring trial to do that. And to do that well. It's In that sense it's like any physical thing. If someone is dealing with. I have a, I have a friend who's a pastor. Who's had a headache constantly. For over 30 years. With no relenting. It's just something probably meningitis. Uh, 30 years ago. And he's never not had a headache. And all kinds of situations exacerbate it. He has to balance his life. And. Pastor, with okay, I've only got four or five hours a day that are really good hours. He's amazing at his stamina. I forget sometimes. Okay, I forget. I mean, if I have a headache for twenty minutes, I'm tapping out. You know, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not coming back till next Thursday. Um, And uh, but you know, so people can build remarkable grace resilience in the midst of pain and suffering. We don't want to deny them that. Um. So I think one of it's just recognize, yeah, the suffering itself. There's no glory in suffering alone, but as a culture, we've robbed glory, uh, suffering of the opportunity to find glory. There's no opportunity to find glory in suffering because it demonstrates we're weak and we're not at capacity, and we need to fix it and move on. So, a, so a, a theology of suffering can be very helpful. Um, and so I think those kind of things for somebody recognizing and. And you know, it's a great thing to rejoice. I have a family member who's who, who who does is diagnosed with bipolar. And just to celebrate, he's very open and honest about it, which is good and important in a in a in a church. If if somebody can't be open and honest about a longstanding condition, we don't have anything we can encourage in that. And so, but if somebody's open and honest, they're open and honest about their addiction. Man, I, I've noticed that. That your tendency to want to just go after things hard, which is an addictive tendency that echoes after people get rid of uh, whatever the substance is. Your, your balance in life is impressive. You're not, you're not, everything doesn't have to be like, you know, jack on hard, you know, like strong for you. It can be, you can be chill. Chill looks good on you. Um, you know, that's a remarkable thing for people. But if people can't share the nature of their struggle, they don't have it, we don't have it a meaningful way to encourage it. So I think that's why we want to
1: make people do that.
2: Anything to No. <laughs> that was that was that was insightful. Yeah. Okay. That's what I'm here
1: for. <laughs> and he told me on Saturday, say I don't know. I, I just didn't.
0: That's right, right yeah. And you even shortened that. You were even more yeah, concise. I
2: just no. Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. Okay, different angle here. How do you speak to non Christian friends struggling with their mental health?
1: Don't
0: know.
1: <laughs> Dave. <laughs> I, love, I love pastoral ministry because you can't take your. If you go to the garage with your injured car and the mechanic comes out and says, I don't know. Yeah. You, you don't go back. But the yeah. pastor, you can just go, I don't know. I don't know. And you're done. And, and then, people think that's humble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're so humble. <laughs> so so uh, humble. Yeah. I still don't know.
2: He's, he's got lots to be humble about. That's right.
1: Now <laughs> no on you. Seriously? Okay. What was the question? again?
2: <laughs> well, you did it yesterday at the cafe. But the question was, yeah. how do you speak to non-Christian friends struggling with their mental health? Uh, I mean, the general principle
0: is evangelism is counseling toward the unbeliever and counseling is evangelism toward the believer they both have the same goal encounter with jesus encounter with jesus so so that's a factor in their lives just like just like gender confusion is a factor in their lives just like just like being compelled to to work 80 hours a week is a factor in their lives. It's just, so what we're able to do is we just interact with them as if that's a factor. And the Lord over time will let us to know how to minister. I wouldn't want to isolate it and say, Jesus can speak to this as if that's what all Jesus cares about. He cares about the whole person. And so we relate always to somebody as a whole person. Um, if they're vulnerable enough to share that, that says a lot about their trust in us. Which can cue us into maybe the spirit of God is opening up doors but they're not doors of ministry into into the the, the mental disorder they're in, into the soul
2: right so. so we're not trying to fix their mental disorder in that moment no. we're trying to no. care for them as a human being and bring them into the yeah. presence of God over time and through knowing yeah. them better et cetera.
0: and so that we have to be very careful not promising in Jesus yeah. an antidote to a mental disorder i've seen it particularly depression things there's a lot of mental disorders i think in our day which are very they're very tied into our social cultural realities depression anxiety fit that they're just proliferating as much because of our culture and social realities as they are because they are issues the the, the problem with the mental health community is it's it's always running behind where the culture's going, and trying to assess the problems that are emerging as the culture changes. And so that's why it's a bit futile to sort of say the, the psychological community is going to get ahead and be able to give you a, here's the state of our, our our psyches. Right now, they're just trying to catch up on depression and those kind of things. It's constantly morphing. It's a very alive thing. And most counselors are going to tell you it is the most problematic thing because it's the least It's typically the least helped by the traditional methods. It's most helped by lifestyle change. Anxiety is most helped by stop thinking like you can solve all your problems through thinking. You know, and and huge amounts of effort being put, whether it's through mindfulness or through rumination therapies, to deal with just the idea that I am convinced... If I think enough about a problem, I can fix it. I don't know if that's ever worked for you. It's never worked in the history of mankind. But people are convinced. Why? Because we think through everything as a solution to all of our problems. All my problems, there's an old adage, uh, if, if all I have is a hammer, all my problems look like nails. Right? And that's what we do. If, if the way we solve our problems is through more and more information, then we will gather more and more information, even if that's not clearly the way it problem. But that's the way I solve my problems, and I try to apply everything the same way. So there's a lot of personality. These things, these personality disorders are very much wrapped into who we are in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think, I think psychology is having trouble keeping up with the cultural change and how it affects people
2: Psychologically, the more everyday, mundane question of you're with someone in life group, perhaps, or community group, or you're chatting with a friend or a family member, and you can sense there's, there's, there's it seems like, oh, they don't seem to be coping, or they're, mm-hmm. they're struggling, etc. How do you know when to speak into that um, with the Bible, or prayer, or offer to help, or when to just? Be quiet and listen, and ask questions, uh, and or refer on to someone else. One of the things
0: I'd recommend is let's get away from the idea of referring on to someone else. That's a as an expertise orientation to helping people. That's not really consistently with the Bible. We're going to stay involved. If they if we can help them find something I'll be with you I don't refer you on can I walk with you toward right would you like to go this direction let me do it with you um, So we have to be very careful and I, I feel like that that as, as I've interacted with the guys over some things within the Christian culture I think any kind of concept that we just got to refer people on is not a biblical concept. And we want to eliminate it as an option, really. We want to say, How can I walk with you? And if you want to walk that direction, that's okay. If not, there's no biblical requirement that you walk toward that. Let's find out where you want to walk and I'll walk with you. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave you and abandon you to a system. Just so like saying to somebody who's who who who's in a situation where they may may need to deal with something in the legal system? You don't go. Well, I think I would usually just go get get an attorney, and I'll see you on the other side. No, it's okay. Let's talk about it. How would we do this? Let's find out what it would be like. Let's do this together.
2: Um, that's fellowship. Yeah. yeah. Would you add, what would you add to that, Dave? You know, you're in conversations. When do you uh, speak in? When do you shut up?
1: I think it's just, I think it's being willing to walk with somebody. Mm. I mean, I think it's why gospel communities, life groups, as you call it in power, are just so important so that you can be around somebody enough to know, yeah, they don't see themselves. Mm. And be bothered enough to walk across the room and ask more questions and ask people how they're really going. But I think Andy's exactly right. I don't think it's then, oh, you know, you should go. You should go do all these things that are just out there. It's walking with people enough to say, "Hey, listen, have you been sleeping recently? Yeah, You been don't seem How, your yourself. Man? Just ask a lot of questions yeah. Yeah. to try and walk with people and, and be bothered enough. And I think there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I don't, I don't really know, but you don't seem see yourself. And do, you, do you, Would you like? Do you think a doctor might just help you right now?'" Right. Maybe I could come with you or walk with you and that. Just being bothered about people, I think, goes an awful yeah. long way. I think people need friends. Hmm. Yeah. Need a bit more. of a
0: caveat, just a, um, the exceptions would be typically um, danger to self or others yeah. or inability to cognitively deal with life as it exists. That's where you sort of, now then you sort of say as a community, We want to come alongside somebody and get them the help they need. So in the conversation where somebody's lucid and there's no danger that they're going to do something stupid to themselves or other, dangerous to themselves or other, then I think it's just, man, have you ever thought about, you know, talking to your MD and just seeing what they might say? You might want to consider that, Mm. you know, and move on. There's a caveat that there are certain situations where you're compelled but for their safety that you might need to do more. And that would be yeah, rough.
1: Yeah, and that would be a time to definitely involve your pastors as yeah. well. I.e., yeah. you know, you, you, we've had people before phone us and they're calling us from the cliff that they're about to jump off We just want to let you know goodbye. Yeah, That's not completely uncommon or a text to say, this is the last time I'll speak to you ever because yeah. I'm about to end my life. Yeah. We need to know about things like that because there's a lot of protocols. You want to help somebody because they are a danger yeah. to themselves. Yeah. That's more high-end yeah. stuff but a lot of stuff just starts with people being troubled
2: mm-hmm. well, One reflection I would add would be that um, I've participated and gone along to counselling sessions a number of times and one of the things that actually stood out to me, these were I believe non-believing counsellors was mm-hmm. they're just much better at listening I think sometimes than Christians and we so yeah. we yeah, it's yeah. like the of the nail hammer, we're like bubble verse, bubble verse, prayer, bubble yeah. verse, bubble mm-hmm. verse, prayer have you been to church, has your yeah. quiet time and you're like In 15 minutes, you know, and we're just going for it. And we can be very quick to just prescribe and solve problems rather than just love the person and walk with them.
1: Yeah. 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 Anytime you want to pay me $280 an hour just to listen to you for an hour, I'm welcome. I'm I'm available. We are happy. We'll do do that that over time. (laughs) There's an interesting
0: thing that happens too. I've had folks in the church who've gone to a counselor and they feel like I've been in three sessions and they've yet to address anything. I'm like frustrated because they're used to what we do. And I don't think what we do is wrong. I think what we do is happens because we are in relationship together already. We are in community where I have an awful lot of information because of a history together. 10, 15 years, 5, 10 years. I, we all know the same people. We're all observing the same situation. There's a whole lot of data and there's a trust status where I can we can interact and dialogue fairly quickly. Someone goes to a counselor, there is a trust-building responsibility. There is a need to recognize that I need to create uh, a, a sense of relationship out of nothing. And I've only got an hour in which to create a relationship, get data, figure out how to, f- to speak into this pr- situation. And you know what? I've got to give them reason to come back if I just sort of launch out and say, you know what we're going to do today? We're just going after it today. Um, probably last time. Right? No need to go back. That's why counselors are very careful and slow, appropriately, because they have every situation, every session is a choice for someone to come to and pay for or not. So it's a different methodology. It's a different methodology than pastors, different methodology
2: than friends. I want to end on one final question, which is: What does the spiritual realm and the demonic realm have to do with mental health and mental illness? A good closure. Go for
1: it. That's just A, nice thing. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: gave, you no, gave a good you, answer the other day, and so yeah, I, you I want you to give.
0: I don't just, remember what I say. Give
2: the good
1: answer again.
0: I don't remember. I probably remember about,
1: you talked just, about. You talked about Do it. <laughs> I, I'll give it for him. It, the reality is the, we're always body, soul, and, and spirit by very nature. So when our body is at times broken, let's not think that Satan doesn't love to then lie a ton to you. And for me, I think a big part, from, from experience of my pastoral ministry, one of the biggest things that Satan will lie to you about is don't tell anyone close the windows close the doors don't involve people and avoid people and i think that's why andy's illustration of the gazebo is so critical for christians because when you get by yourself with thoughts and lies they are firing in and no one's even noticing or seeing or be able to even speak into that and that's when the problems tend to start to occur so is satan involved? yes is he causing mental illness? I don't think so. I think our bodies break and then Satan takes advantage of that and loves loves to get involved in that sphere. So I, I don't spend a ton of time praying against the devil per se. It's more looking to Christ. Yeah. Keep looking up. You know, he is redemptive in it. You know, it's the Ephesians 6 model of stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Hold up the shield of faith. Mm-hmm. Bring people mm-hmm. into your life. Get these windows yeah. open. Stand, would you stand with me? I'm tempted to believe yeah. lies right now. So I think spirituality yeah. plays a real part. But we should never be thinking, yeah. hey, I think it's just some type of satanic attack. I think yeah. the most I would say on satanic attack is, yeah, you sound like you're in a season where you're being lied to a lot. Yeah, Yeah. I, I think bizarre is not satanic the brain can
0: can create bizarre yes it can um in fact my concern about the devil is not with the person who's struggling with a with a delusion my struggle is with the person who thinks they can be unforgiving toward other people and god's okay with that that's where i get concerned about the devil because he's going to lie to you and tell you that you don't have to own your sin. He's going to lie to tell you that you can pick and choose what the Bible says. He's going to do what he did to Adam and say, "Does God really matter? Does God really care?" Him? Nah. Yep. Forget about him. That's where I see the devil. He's dealing with us all. He's got a he's got a plan for every single one of us that's he's acting on tonight. We fight against him every day. It has nothing to do with mental disorders. The fight is the fight for the soul. The fight is the fight for will I believe and obey God against what I prefer to want to do. Yeah. If Satan can say you don't need to, or God doesn't love you, or God can't or won't, that's his biggest lie, yeah. God can't, God won't, and bring the, the credibility of God into question it, you don't need to have a mental disorder to, to be in that battle. So I just don't. it just doesn't occur. It doesn't bother. It doesn't. I don't have a category for it specifically related to mental illness. Mm-hmm. I have a category related to people who want to follow Jesus. You will f- be attacked. Yeah. Kind and of let's all, mm-hmm.
2: let's let's all help each you other know, fight that fight. I think uh, it'd be worth closing out at that point.